This morning's reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in 2021, my mother and my stepfather died, and so that meant a lot of things, of course, but one of the things it meant is we needed to look through a house full of stuff. And so if you've ever had to do that, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, and so, you know, we're looking through boxes and boxes, and, and uh, just to be honest, a lot of it we threw away, but we did keep some special things, and you know, you're, you're always trying to be the detective in those moments. What is the thing I want right now? What's the thing that I'm going to want in the future? But one thing uh, didn't require any uh, amount of time to keep. Uh, it was a letter that I had never heard about, but it's a letter from Eleanor Roosevelt in January of 1934 to my great-grandfather. Yeah, so this is, uh, Mr. Sunderland is, is the, my great-grandfather in this picture. So this is my, uh, my mom's grandfather, my mom's mom's, da- um, mom's mom's dad. And so Eleanor Roosevelt writes to my uh, great-grandfather. She says, my dear Mr. Sunderland, I was very much interested in your letter and in your plan, and I think it is an excellent one. Feeling as I do that it is the youth of our country who are more deeply concerned in the changes which are coming about, I think that anything done to equip them for work in the future is well worthwhile. I do not expect to be in Hyde Park for some time, but shall certainly keep your place in mind and stop to see what you are doing if I can. Very sincerely yours, Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, that's amazing. It's, a, it's amazing just straight up. So she's, she's the first lady at this time. Um, so that's amazing. But then, you, but then when you start to read it, you just, have, you just have a lot of questions. Well, for one, you wish you had the letter that he wrote to her. Like, what is the letter that he wrote that she's responding to? And then, you know, it's an excellent plan. What's the plan? What's the plan that is being talked about here? I can guess. He was, a, he was an Episcopal minister in New York City, and, so, and he, he um, would lead this summer camp for uh, inner-city youth in upstate New York. So I, I'm guessing the plan has something to do with that. But I have no idea. Did, did she or did she not ever, you know, when she went to Hyde Park, which is the Roosevelt home, did she ever stop by his, his summer camp for inner city youth? I have no idea. So it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful document that invites more questions, right? And, it's, and when you read something like this, you do what's called mirror reading. <clears throat> so you're trying to imagine what's the conversation on the other side, that you have half the conversation, what's the conversation on the other side? Well, that's, that's what we have in 1 Corinthians. 
The difference with 1 Corinthians, though, is where, so this is by a person to another person. And even though I'm related to one of the people, it's, it's not to me. But in the case of 1 Corinthians, you have an unusual situation where you have a letter written by someone, Paul, and then Sosthenes, the co-author, written to someone else, the Corinthians, this church in Corinth, and yet it's at the same time to all of us. It's also a letter from God to us. So God is, God is speaking to us in 1 Corinthians. And fortunately, even though we don't know all, the, um, uh, all of our, our questions aren't answered, the important ones are. There's plenty in here to work with. So the, the few places where we can't exactly figure out what's, what's being talked about are, are small. The, the vast majority of what's being talked about here, we fully get and we should get. God has left it uh, readable and understandable to us. But it is nonetheless uh, a case of mirror reading. As one commentator said, we're literally reading someone else's mail in 1 Corinthians. And yet, as I said, at the same time, it's a letter to us, from God to us. Well, it's called 1 Corinthians, or maybe your Bible has something like what my Bible has, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, or something along those lines. Why is it called Corinthians? Well, it's because it's written to the Corinthians. They're the receiving, the readers of this letter, the recipients of this letter. So let's think just a minute about Paul's relationship to the Corinthians. You know, why, why, how did these two people come together? Did he know them or did he not know them? Well, if you, if you read your New Testament in order, you get to the book of Acts before you get to the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you're reading the book of Acts, when you get to chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth. And that's where he plants the church in Corinth. And he does there what he often does, which is he, he'll go to the Jewish synagogues uh, on the Sabbath and he'll preach Christ. And as he preaches Christ, some people get saved. And, and as those people are saved, he gathers them and then he forms a church. And so that's what he did in Corinth. And so he, he at this time, um, uh, so he's, he's, a, he's a traveling uh, uh, apostle uh, sent by the Lord. He's, he's traveled thousands of miles throughout the ancient world around the Mediterranean at this time, but he does land in the city of Corinth. And just to give you some historical sense of Corinth, at the time it would have been like a, a, a New York City. Now it was much smaller in scale, so maybe 100,000 people, I mean, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a total guess on the population, but just based on what a lot of historians have, have seen and decided, 100,000 people is kind of the guess. And so it's, it's uh, compared to a, a city of 100,000 today, it's, it would be thought of as much more metropolitan, busy, wealthy. So 100,000 city uh, today is you know, a somewhat smaller size, but and then it's, that's a large city. And it happened to be between two harbors. It was this weird uh, geographic situation uh, where you have a harbor and then a, a small strip of land and then you have another harbor. So those two harbors were very busy in terms of trade. And you could cross that little land bridge. It was only about five miles. So a lot of times uh, shippers would, would bring their boats and they would actually carry the entire boat across that land bridge, drop it in the other harbor, and then go east uh, to uh, Asia Minor. So that's Corinth. Busy wealthy. It's a, it's, a, it's a Greco-Roman city of the day, so paganism is huge. Temples everywhere. Uh, there are no Christians around, right? This is a total unbelieving population. There would be some Jews, but no Christians until Paul gets there. And so he meets Aquila and Priscilla. Those are two people who feature prominently in his letters. Uh, it's a husband and wife duo. They happen to be tent makers, and so Paul himself is also a tent maker. 
which means he makes tents, literally makes tents. That's what tent maker is. We've, we use that kind of as a metaphor now, but no, he literally, the metaphor comes from Paul. So when you, <laughs> he was a tent maker because he made tents. And so he met Aquila and uh, his wife Priscilla, and they're, they're prominent, uh, as I said. There's also the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, and I, and I mention these names because they pop up in, in, are in the Corinthian letter. Crispus is a ruler of the synagogue. He gets saved. Well, the Jews, as he's ministering in Corinth, aren't happy with what he's doing, uh, those who are not being saved. So those who are not being saved are very unhappy, and they do what they almost always do to Paul, which is that they somehow rally a mob together, and they figure out some way to cast him out of the city. So in this case, they bring him before Gallio, the proconsul, which is, which is basically just bringing him to court. They bring him to court, and Gallio hears the case, and he's like, uh, I could care less about what you guys are talking about. He, th- he just dismisses the case. Well, the Jews aren't happy, and so they start to beat up another ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes. That's the Sos- probably the Sosthenes that we read about in, in verse 1. And so, so then Paul um, <clears throat> stays in Corinth 18 months, long time for uh, his, the only place he stays longer is actually Ephesus. He stays there three years. But he stays in Corinth for a year and a half. And then he leaves with Aquila and Priscilla, Sosthenes, Crispus. Uh, his ministry team is expanding. So Timothy's with him and others as well. So he leaves there, goes to Ephesus. He's in Ephesus for three years. And it's actually from Ephesus that he writes all of his Corinthian letters. And this is, this is kind of interesting. Speaking of, you know, you wish you had the other side of the, of the story. What we have as 1 Corinthians is actually at least... 2 Corinthians, because in chapter 5, verse 9, he refers to another letter he wrote previously, so that's in 1 Corinthians, and then you get to 2 Corinthians, and he refers to yet another letter, which seems to be written between 1 and 2 Corinthians, so our 1 and 2 Corinthians is really 2 and 4 Corinthians, we just don't have 1 and 3 Corinthians, so there you go, but we're not going to use that terminology in case you're worried. We're just going to call 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians like it's in your Bible, and 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. But just know that, that as you read along in 1 Corinthians, you see references to other writings that we don't have. Well, what about the letter of 1 Corinthians? So we're going to be in Corinthians here for about 24 weeks, Lord willing. So what about this book? Well, it's long, 16 chapters. Only Romans is longer in terms of the letters of Paul. So his second longest, the, uh, the letters of Paul are in order of length and then uh, to groups first, and then individuals. So it's a long book, and it's filled with a, just a massive diversity of topics. So it starts off with you know, unity and leadership in the church. It gets into sexual immorality very quickly. There's food sacrifice to idols, an issue of that time, and we'll, we'll think about what that means to us. Marriage and singlehood gets a significant chapter, chapter 7. Corporate worship gets multiple chapters toward the end of the book. Prophecy and speaking in tongues are, are taught about, talked about in the most extensive way in the New Testament. And then Jesus' resurrection and ours gets a, gets a long chapter. Chapter 15 is 58 verses long. So extensive book, many topics. But we don't want to read this like Wikipedia where you just, you just go there, I'm curious about such and such, I'm just going to go to Wikipedia, drop in there, as, and, and all the entries are totally disconnected, right? But in 1 Corinthians, this massive array of topics is part of a single letter. And there's overarching concerns that run throughout the letter. And one of them you can't really miss unless you just kind of take it for granted and forget to to notice it. And that's Jesus Christ. 
The first nine verses, which we read today, mention Jesus Christ ten times. And you might not have noticed any of them because we're so used to seeing Jesus when we read the New Testament, seeing the word Jesus, I mean, our Lord Jesus Christ or the, our, or the Son of God, uh, God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He, said, he has different ways of saying it. But tr- if you can, just try to discipline yourself to not miss it. It's, his name is everywhere and it's always intentional. It, they're not throwaway phrases. You know, like sometimes we pray and we use throwaway phrases like just. You know, we just, we, uh, Lord, we just, we just come before you today and we just, uh, we just, we just pray for so-and-so. We just ask you to, just as a, it's a throwaway phrase in a prayer. Not to, not to make you overly self-conscious when you pray, but um, it does happen. But Jesus is not the just of these, of these sentences. He's the center of the sentences. And what happens in Corinthians is, is, is Paul's going to tie everything to Jesus. So all those topics that I read about ultimately find their understanding and orientation and right way of thinking about it in Christ. If you don't get the, 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 the Christological or the Christ-centered connection in the topic, you don't get the topic. That's what Paul would say to us. So that's a huge issue, Christ. And then there's this eschatological. You know, es, es, the eschaton is, is the last things. So eschatological is talking about the last things, the things that are coming in the future when Christ returns. The notion that we live in, in the end times awaiting the return of Christ is everywhere. We'll see that. What, what is true holiness, true sanctification? We'll see those words today. What is true spirituality? If we are going to be a people of the Spirit, what does that even mean? Well, these are all topics that feature prominently. And so in all these different practical discussions, he's going to find a way to to bring in all of those themes as he does that. And then the other interesting thing about Corinthians, which makes it, one author said, it's embarrassingly similar to our world today. When When you think of the city of Corinth and what they struggled with, it's embarrassingly similar to our world today. And what he meant is that their worldview was so similar. If you just put the United States of America you know, on top of Corinth, their worldview. And this is obviously the, the unbelieving part of the United States of America. Their worldview is so similar. But the reason we have Corinthians is because those Corinthians were so easily swayed by that Corinthian worldview, just like American Christians are so easily swayed by the worldview of unbelieving America. And so this speaks to Christians in a, in a worldview absolutely opposed to theirs. So the series we're calling Being the People of God, Being the People of God, and that's the title of this sermon today. And so our three points are three significant points about being the people of God in this letter and also in this text. The first one is who you are, saints. Second one, what you've received, grace. And then third, how you must grow, agree. Now, agree is specific to this text. It, disunity and unity are the, are the practical issues where they need to change. But that idea that, that you are something, you are saints, you've received something, grace, and yet you need to change in, in specific areas. If you can keep those three things together as you read Corinthians, you'll be helped. Because that's kind of the three-legged stool of Corinthians. We don't want to forget any one of those. Father, we pray for our time this morning and in Corinthians, this letter that you've left for us, preserved for us. We pray that you would change us 
We pray that these specific words and sentences would just find their way into our lives and hearts and souls and minds and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. I did use the word just, didn't I? (laughs) It's just, you just get used to it. All right, point one, who you are, saints. Who you are, saints. Paul starts this letter like he starts all 13 of his letters. He identifies himself, Paul. And what he says after that is always really interesting and different and intentional. He's not just any Paul. He's the Paul that's called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So it's kind of a a double statement of his, of kind of the divine license he has to write this letter. And that notion of of called by God and equipped as an apostle or, or commissioned to be an apostle, a sent one on behalf of Jesus Christ, one author said that that gave him a genuine humility and a supreme confidence. Genuine humility, supreme confidence. Genuine humility, I'm called by God. I'm, I'm fulfilling a commission that God himself has given me. I can't screw this up. There's a genuine humility that goes along with that. However, he knows he's called. He knows that he knows that he's called. And so there's a supreme confidence in what he says. You never have to wonder what Paul's really thinking. He said that, but what did he really mean by that? Now, he tends to say exactly what he meant to say. And then he writes it, as I said, with this brother, Sosthenes. And there's a good chance that Sosthenes' role in this letter is as a secretary, an amanuensis, it's called. So Paul's speaking the letter, Sosthenes is the one who's writing it, and they would have collaborated to some extent on the contents. Sosthenes from Corinth would have had a keen keen insight into what the Corinthians were thinking and doing and what they needed to hear uh, from Paul. And so it it is a collaborative effort, even though Paul would be the primary author there. And then he writes to the church, and this is where we get into the, our, 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 the point of point one, which is that these are saints. So it's addressed to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, if you know Corinthians, you know these people are, they're just like watching a, a slow motion train wreck. They have serious problems. They have serious issues in their church. And yet, that isn't at all where Paul starts. He starts with statements of identity. Unchanging identity that they have from the Lord. They are the church, the ecclesia, the gathering. They are the church of God. They have God as their source, God as their purpose, God as their sustainer. They are the church named by God. And it's a church that's in Corinth, and we don't want to, in some ways you don't want to read over that too quickly. The church isn't some invisible, vague things you, you, you can't really get your mind around, you can't really see it, it's just sort of there in this vague, mystical kind of way. That actually isn't what the New Testament church is. The New Testament church is God's people. When they gather, they are the church. This is that gathering which is in Corinth. It's hard to articulate exactly the, the notion that it's this invisible spiritual thing because it's eternal all the people of God throughout all of history are part of the church and yet yet at the same time it's specific gatherings of people you know we are a church because we are a gathering of God's people 
And then he identifies them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, usually when you talk, talk about the word sanctified, you mean progressive sanctification, ways that you need to change and become holy. So I hope, you know, God help me this year in 2023 to be more sanctified, you know, to pray more and to read the Bible more and to obey more so that I might be more sanctified. That's not the use that it means here. This is definitive sanctification. You're set apart at a moment in time, because that, that's what sanctification is. It's connected to holiness, and those words together mean set apart. You know, I was over here just in my worldliness, unbelieving self, and then God set me apart to be his. I belong to him, just like those holy utensils that, had, that the priests used in the Old Testament. In some ways, they were just plates. They were just basins. They were just spoons. They were just items, and yet they were pulled out of this common use and they were given this holy purpose by the Lord. They were sanctified. They were set apart. They were no longer what they were because, of, because they were being set apart for God's use, God's use alone. And, and the really important thing here with both sanctified and this idea that we are saints, holy ones, set apart ones, is he's not telling us what we need to be if we would only try harder. He's not telling us what we could be if we would only try harder. It's a statement of fact. You are sanctified. If you're a Christian, you are sanctified. You are a saint. There aren't levels of sainthood. There's saints and there's everyone going to hell. <clears throat> those are the levels. Saints and then those who are going to hell. There's no third category of person. You know, the super Christians are the saints. And then you have the normal Christian and then you have the people going to hell. That's not how it works. You're saints or you're going to hell. Those are the categories. And then he identifies Christians as, uh, or, or these saints, as being saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, what is a Christian? A Christian who is someone who has called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in a particular way. You've called on him for salvation. You've called on him to save you. You've called on him because you, you're in some way aware that you're in that category of those going to hell. I'm not in the right category. And so you call on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. You know, it's, it's like Peter drowning in the water. He's walking on the water for a little bit. He turns away. He starts drowning and he calls on the name of the Lord. Well, that's sort of a picture of our salvation. We have some sense, not a perfect sense, but some sense, Lord, I'm drowning. I'm going to hell without you. And so you call on the name of the Lord. That's what a Christian is. Romans 10, 13. Paul quotes the Old Testament. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A Christian is someone who's called on the name of the Lord. Have you done that? Have you called on the name of the Lord? And then he closes in his most common, you know, when he's doing these greetings, he closes with his most common method, which is grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, grace is what we're given by God, and then peace is the result of that. God gives us grace, and then we have peace. So the application point here first is don't miss what the church is. 
These are all, everything Paul says here is, these are statements of fact. This is what the church is. Not the church on its best day, it's what the church is. It's easy to think of churches as, as, as this kind of cringy gathering of social outcasts. <clears throat> or in a song which I really love, uh, Switchfoot's beautiful letdown, great song. You know, this is how they describe the church, you know, painfully uncool. The church of the dropouts, the losers, the sinners, the failures, and the fools. Now, they're seeing the whole thing. The song is called Beautiful Letdown. We may be a letdown, but we are a beautiful letdown. But it's easy to get, kind of fall into seeing churches and the church through the world's eyes. You know, they're, they're proud, they're narrow-minded, they're just bitter, angry, unfriendly, whatever. <clears throat> the world as you might guess, doesn't see the church accurately. And so we can fall into that easily, that a total critical mindset. So we see the church through the world's eyes. But the church in our eyes can fall short all the time too. You know, people can leave churches for terrible reasons. They get offended because someone mis- you know, spoke to them in a way they didn't appreciate and they didn't work through any kind of process of reconciliation or forgiveness or even attempt to, to bring... Uh, uh, peace to the relationship and they just get offended and they leave and so they're seeing that church or that person through their own eyes and yet what Paul is doing is seeing the church through God's eyes this is what the church is this is what the church is and we'll see some implications of that as we work through but we want to see the church through God's eyes that's the first thing second thing what you've received grace what you've received grace verses three through nine Sorry, four through nine. So Paul now turns to thanksgiving, which is very common for him. Usually he's got a greeting, and then he turns to thanksgiving and prayer, and then he launches into the, the body of his letters. And so this thanksgiving is noteworthy because he keeps going on this theme of what is true of the church in Corinth. What is true of the church in Corinth? And he talks about Grace. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And this grace has this past, present, and future dimension to it. We'll think of it that way. So grace was given you in Christ Jesus. Obviously, it's looking back to when we received grace. And grace is the word charis. You might, you might know that already. But, and it's related to the word for gift, which is charismata. So grace and charis, uh, grace, charis and gift, charismata are very related in the New Testament. And grace, in, it's, in some ways, it's a shorthand for the whole array of things given to us in Christ. There, it, it's hard to articulate all those things. And in fact, you know, in, in Ephesians one three, Paul doesn't even try. He starts off this um, this list of wonderful things, but he starts off the list by saying, "Every spiritual blessing has been given you in Christ Jesus." Every spiritual blessing has been given you in Christ Jesus. That's grace. Grace is this singular gift which, is, which opens you up to an infinitude of gifts from the Lord, if you can say that. So it's eternal life. It's receiving God's spirit. Or God is not a Scrooge, you know, Scrooge before he changes his life, right? He's not the stingy God that we sometimes want him uh, or make him out to be. You know, he's, ho- he's always holding back the best. He's given us the best. He's given us grace. 
that grace comes to us in Christ Jesus, in the very Son of God. And he articulates some of those things which they've received, which, which connects to other topics in the letter. You know, all speech and all knowledge. You know, they have, they have uh, wisdom. The testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So the gospel was preached in your midst, you responded, and it had, and it had its intended effect. It changed your life. So grace was given us. And then we think about the present. He articulates a couple things. He says, you're, you're not lacking in any charismata. Now, he's talking to a very charismatic church. If you think about manifestation, miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. They were into that in Corinth. We're into that here in Apex. They were into that in Corinth. And he says right at the front, they're not lacking in any gift. I mean, he's going to bring a lot of correctives about their use of, of the charismata uh, later in the letter. Obviously, he's aware of that. But at first, it's just an encouragement that you're not lacking in any gift. And that's true for us as well. Whatever is needed is ours, or God will provide it through some other means. Whatever is needed, it's ours. And then, this, then there's this other present tense gift, this thing that we have now in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You were called into the koinonia, the fellowship. And that fellowship, it's kind of this powerful double meaning. It's the fellowship with Christ. Christ himself. Being a Christian is to have a connection. It's to have fellowship with the very son of God. That's what salvation opens up to us, which wasn't open to us before. We have fellowship with Jesus. He's in heaven, and yet through the Spirit, we fellowship with the Son. He's in us, we're in him as well. Union with Christ is, is the spiritual side of that fellowship. So it's fellowship with the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, but also the fellowship of his Son is the church. We're brought into the fellowship. This is the fellowship. So we're brought into the fellowship. In this case, in the case of the letter, it's the fellowship which was in Corinth. In our case, it's the fellowship which is in Apex. We're called out of aloneness into a family, the family of God, brothers and sisters, uh, before our Heavenly Father. And, then, and then, he, then he looks ahead, and so he has all this wonderful language on the fact that we're waiting for something. You know, we're waiting for something in a very particular way. You know, it's, not, it's not like when you wait for the bus for a job you hate. You know, you are waiting for the bus. You know the bus is necessary. The bus is going to take you to the job. The job is necessary. I hate the job, but I've got to go to it because, because it pays the bills, and that's fine. And that's a good thing. So I'm waiting for the bus. I'm not thinking, when I get on the bus, everything will be wonderful. My life will be different. In fact, usually the way you cope with that situation is you try not to think about what's actually happening. I'm going, to listen to, I'm going to listen to a podcast, I'm going to read a book, and try not to be in this moment, which I don't want to be in, right? That's the waiting that's happening there. <clears throat> really different than the waiting of my son right now. He's waiting for his wedding. It's a very active waiting. There's a lot of things to do as you wait for such a thing. And you know that when you get to that point, things will be different in, in very wonderful ways. That's the waiting that Paul's talking about. We're waiting for the most amazing thing we could possibly imagine. And we're going to be part of it. It's like 
Christmas time's a bazillion kind of waiting. We're waiting for the most amazing thing that we could, like I said, we could ever imagine. So he describes it this way. Uh, you are not lacking in any gift, verse 7. You are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most amazing thing we can imagine. And we can't imagine it. And he talks about it as a revealing. That's interesting. There's a lot. You could, he could have talked about the return of Christ. The coming of Christ. The appearance of Christ. He has different ways of referring to that day. But here it's the revealing. So Christ to us is hidden in many ways. But, but when he comes, he will be revealed in this glorious way. And that's what we are waiting for as the people of God. And God is faithful. God is faithful. Verse 9, God is faithful. Why does he say God is faithful there of all places? God is faithful. I mean, it's true. God is faithful. Yes. I think what Paul is saying there is that because God is faithful, you, you will be there. You will be there on that day in joy and worship and celebration. You're going to get through all the days between now and then. You're going to get through them all. You're going to make it. You're going to make it to that day. That's what he's saying there. Well, these, this second point, and really the first two points, have so emphasized things that are true of us. I mean, he's going to get to ways we need to change and things that shouldn't be true of us. But he starts off these verse 9 verses in, in this just wonderful, glorious list of things that are true of us as Christians, as the people of God. And in Michael Emlet's book, Saints, Suffers, and Sinners, I mentioned earlier, he, has a, he actually has a chapter on, the, on these verses, verses 1 through 9 in Corinthians. And he talks about this, the way that we can uh, make this active in our lives. And he talks about being a signpost. We want to act as a signpost for discouraged saints. We want to act as a signpost for discouraged saints. What does he mean by that? <clears throat> well, we want to be those who, when you, when you confront the discouraged saint, you know, beat up by their failure, beat up by a hard situation, they're just beat up in general. When you confront the discouraged saints, you're the signpost. You're the reminder of all these things that are not just true in general, but true of that person. They're saints. They are sanctified. They've been given grace. They are owned and sustained by the living God who is faithful. And they're awaiting this revealing of the Son of God. I mean, any number of those truths in that moment can be very encouraging. Because that's not how they feel. That's not how we feel in those moments. And so he talks about being a signpost for discouraged saints. He talks about marriages. You know, you're in a tough time in a marriage. And he's not trying to minimize sin. He has many good things to say there. So there's, there's a place to, to deal seriously with sin, of course. But when you reflect on these evidences of grace, these things that are true, um, and you can add to this ways that the person is walking in holiness, walking in grace, walking in obedience. Not perfectly, but, they're, but signs of it. You know, there's signs of, of growth and change and then these other realities of our identity. So when you choose to speak to a person, especially in a, in a, in a difficult, as he says, in a difficult marriage, what you're communi communicating is this. You are more than the worst I often see in you. It's a great line. You are more than the worst I often see in you. 
You are more than the worst I often see in you. Because in hard times, that's all you see, right, is the worst. But what, what he's saying is you have, to, you have to retrain yourself to see more. And when you do that, it communicates you are more than the worst I often see in you. So he says, in a believer, there is always something redemptive to notice and to celebrate. That's a great way to make these verses active in, a, in a, any relationship that you have. Parents, great way to make these verses active for you. I mean, that's, that's tempting as a parent. You're, you're just aware of the worst in the child. You know, it's a hard season or whatever. It's, it's a hard child. And so you're aware of the worst often. And so he's talking about retraining yourself to see the rest of the story. It communicates, you are more than the worst I often see in you. There's more there. There's more that God is doing that's present. Third point, how you must grow. Now, Paul is going to dive into a very specific issue with the Corinthians, which happens to be one of their fundamental failures as a church, which is disunity. And so his appeal is going to be to agree. It's verses 10 through 17, and, in some, and there's debate about whether this is the key theme in Corinthians or whether it's just one of the themes of Corinthians. It's at least one of the major themes in Corinthians. He goes back to this theme of unity and disunity a lot. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is very relevant to a church that's struggling with disunity. Let me read these verses, though, so we, don't, uh, so we can keep track of what he's, what he's saying. So verse 10 through 17, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It seemed useful, although we, we had second thoughts, but it, did, it ultimately seemed useful to include 10 through 17 in this sermon. Because it helps to fill out the picture. You know, knowing who we are, you know, we're saints. Knowing what we've been given, we've been given grace. That's not all we need to, to wrestle with as Christians, especially as Christians living life together. Actually, the area of sin and growth and faithfulness to God is another critical area that we need to be concerned about. So our task isn't just to sit around and affirm each other with what is true and doesn't need to change. Our task also involves taking sin seriously, taking growth seriously, taking the progressive side of sanctification seriously. And that... And that change required means we either have to stop doing something that we're doing or we have to start doing something we're not doing. So we either have to start, stop it or we have to start it. It just depends on the thing, right? So in this case, they need to stop quarreling and they need to start agreeing, living in unity. So what did their division look like? Well, there's quarreling, bickering, some kind of contentiousness that's 
so bad that Chloe, who, who was probably just a significant woman in the church, reached out to Paul and said, Paul, you need to do something here. This is not good. And so then it gets described this way. You know, one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. So it's that, it's that very common Christian tendency, which is to, to latch on to a, a certain leader or, or church or style or even denomination and then to discredit the other ones. And so, you know, you have the Paul people, and these are the people that maybe come along and they say, look, this guy raises the dead. That's the guy you should follow. And then you have the, the Apollos people. I follow Apollos. Yeah, but he's a great preacher. He's so much better than Paul. I mean, remember, Eutychus died listening to Paul's sermon. He got so, so bored, he fell asleep and fell out a window and died. But the Paul people would say, yeah, but then Paul raised him from the dead. They never forgot that sermon. And then you have the Cephas people. He's the Pope, come on. Only kidding. He knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus. How could you not be a Cephas person? That's, you know, Cephas is another name for Peter. And then you have the Christ people who are really self-righteous and hard to take. <laughs> you guys get all wrapped up in your human leaders. I don't need a human leader. For me, it's just me and Jesus. It's all I need. <clears throat> so cults of personality. There's a, there's a thousand ways we screw that up, right? And his appeal is, Stop doing that. Follow Christ. And he, and he basically brings, uh, he's got two ways of addressing it, kind of a heart way and then a, and then a, then a mind way. The heart way is, is, is just stop, repent. This is a sinful action you need to stop. But then the second way is, is his, his mental appeal. He just says this is absurd. So his questions are, is Christ divided? You know, the body of Christ, is it divided? So here you are splintering into these factions of, according to certain leaders, is the body of Christ divided? That's absurd. Was Paul crucified for you? Paul and Apollos, Cephas, hey, they might be useful in the, in, in the purposes of God. None of them were crucified for you. Make no mistake about who these guys are. They're sinners. They were not crucified for you. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he, get, then he goes off on a, a small parenthetical statement about baptism here. And then he returns in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And in some ways what he's doing there is he's holding up the gospel, the gospel of a crucified Christ. And, he, and in some ways he wants their factionalism an obsession with certain human leaders and personalities to just die as they behold their crucified Savior. That's your Lord. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for the church. So let your schisms die a natural death once, once you behold that gospel. There was one author that as he's reflecting on on. This, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollo's language, and he, and he talked about the scandal of perpetrating denominations. The tragic state of affairs that we have in the church. And it's kind of a useful point, but at the same time, it's, it's not a helpful way to say it, only because unity as a Christian is not a simple unity. So we need to be unified, but you can't be flippant about what is and what isn't unity. There are, there, are very, there are some very wrong ways of thinking about unity. And so I think this is a, 
well, this is one way I'll just say you could think about unity. The three dimensions of true Christian unity. Now, Paul's after, you know, in some ways he's speaking to a relational unity. You know, so 1 Corinthians 13. Unity can have just have a, a relational side to it. So you're, you're purposing to be at peace with one another, not be angry and, uh, and, and divide between each other. But Christian unity also has a doctrinal component. There's, there is a gospel that is a true gospel, and there are other gospels which are false gospels. And if you believe false gospels, you're not a Christian. So there's no, there's no Christian unity with someone who isn't a Christian. You can have a good relationship with somebody who's not a Christian, but you can't have Christian unity with a non-Christian. You have to believe the true gospel to be a Christian. So we can have no Christian unity with a Mormon. Their Jesus is not Jesus. They're nice. They use so many of the same words that we use. They even use the same New Testament that we use. It's very confusing. But the fundamental flaw in the entire foundation of the building is that their Jesus is a different Jesus. Their Jesus was created. So the Father created Jesus and Lucifer and all people. And Jesus happened to triumph over Lucifer at a certain moment in in the ancient past. And so he became the one in whom everyone would be redeemed and saved. So it doesn't matter that they would say he's born of Mary, that he he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross and he was resurrected, he's at the right hand of God, blah, 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 blah. It's not Jesus. We can have no true unity with a Mormon. And then there's a moral side. There's a moral side to Christian unity. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, we'll get to this, but there's actually certain people, because of their behaviors, we actually will not associate with them. Now, he has two very different categories. We're going to preach a whole sermon on this because it is complex. People who aren't Christians sin in very obvious ways. That's not who he's talking about. These are people who say that they're Christians sinning in those ways. If they say that they're Christians sinning in these particular ways, that's where he says, do not even associate with them. You can't have true Christian unity with those people. You can't have it. So true Christian unity has to have those, all three of those things together. A relational component, a doctrinal component, and a moral component. That's the kind of unity he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. So being the people of God, <clears throat> that's what he's after. That we would know who we are as saints, that we would know what we've received, which is grace, and that we would commit ourselves to God in all the various ways that he's going to com- call us to uh, obey throughout the book of Corinthians. Earlier this week, I heard a podcast by Sinclair Ferguson, and he, re- he referred to a, a, an event that happened to him in his early 20s. So he's a young, he's a young preacher, he's, he's growing uh, in his ministry training, <clears throat> and he finds himself at a Methodist church. He didn't even know what a Methodist church was, but he finds himself at a Methodist church in Scotland, and so he's there, and they're having what's, what they would do every year, apparently, which is have a commitment service. And in that commitment service, they would, they would read a covenant together. And the covenant seemed very fitting for this sermon at the start of another new year. You know, 2023 is we're a week into it, but only a week. <clears throat> and so we read, uh, so it seemed an appropriate way to respond to this sermon, anticipate the book of Corinthians in some ways as a commitment to really just to say to the Lord, Lord, I belong to you. I pray that you would change me. Change me as you want to change me. 
I surrender myself to you, not even knowing what that entails, but I surrender myself to you. So Philip, why don't you bring the worship team up? If you could stand, and we're going to read this together as a, as a fitting close to our sermon. I think we have this, yes. And so read it together in the sense of everyone out loud simultaneously. So this is a covenant with God. So I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Father, that is our prayer, that you would search our hearts, that you would use the book of Corinthians to do that. Search our hearts, sanctify us, make us more holy. We know that we are holy because you've set us apart, and yet we also know that you are calling us to be holy. We are to be holy, for you are holy. And so, Lord, we we pray that more and more and more and more and more we would become what we already are, We are yours. Let our lives, our words, our thoughts reflect that. We belong to you. We are yours. Let the holiness that you you are in a complete, infinite way, let it be more reflected in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.